do you remember most about your time in France when you were a young child in the army? Uh, what I remember most was actually I was always trying to get off the base in any way possible. I was trying to connect with the environment, with the people, but most of all with the language. Enchanté. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about delicious French food and the people that love it, cook it, produce, talk, write and photograph it. French dishes and their origins can often be a contentious issue, sparking a fiery debate amongst the French over a glass or two or three of wine at the local bar or bistro. Sometimes the government of France will even step in to put a classification on a dish or an ingredient to make sure that what something is, is what it says it is. Does that make sense? I'm confused. And look, if I'm confused, no wonder the government has to step in. Today on Fabulously Delicious, helping us sort through and devour one of my favourite French dishes, the tartiflette, is a fabulous person who lives an equally fabulous life that I'm sure after today's episode, we will all be very envious of. Teresa Kaufman, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Thanks for inviting me, Andrew. Pleasant to be here. Teresa, I wanted to go back to your childhood, if you don't mind. It would only be, what, 10, 15 years ago? <laughs> that's right. At least that's, yes. what I, that's the way I feel. <laughs> Great. You grew up in a very unique environment. What was it? Well, my father was military. So I was actually born on a military base in Texas. And um, I only know Texas from what it says on my birth certificate, but we were traveling ever since then. What is life like as a child on an army base? Well, whether you're a child or an adult, an army base is like a bubble. Whether you are an army base in Texas, in Pennsylvania, in France, in uh, wherever, you're on your army base, it's like being in America. Your stores are American, your movies American, everything is American. And if you do not want it to be anything but that, you can never leave America, regardless of where you are on the planet, on an army base. You know, we see it on TV. Did you get to like drive around in Jeeps and things like this? Well, I guess my father did, but I was a little too young at that time. Um, he did, but I, I, of course, was just, you know, going on the big, uh, those khaki green buses to school. and uh, But it was all, it, it could have been New Jersey as far as I was concerned. It, it was all the same. Speaking of New Jersey, you ended up there at one stage. Where, what other places, apart from France, uh, which we'll talk about soon, but where else did you move around when you were a child? Well, um, I was, we lived in France at the, when I was five to eight. So before that, it's like a muddle because it was every year or so my father would be stationed at another place. I guess sometime in Pennsylvania. Um, but I don't really know what happened before five. Then three years in France and then back, then we went back to an army base in New Jersey. And that's where I grew up. Most of uh, my impressions from New Jersey is uh, the Jersey Shore TV show. And, of course, all my favourite, The Real Housewives of New Jersey, which I'm sure isn't that real. What is the real New Jersey like? Only for the happy few. Right. What does that mean? New Jersey is a fantastic state to live in. It is natural, wilderness, commercial close to New York, and my dad would always say, I love living in New Jersey because nothing happens here. 
No, no earthquakes, no forest fires, no tornadoes, no windstorms, no tidal waves. My dad did not see the storm Sandy come to his door. So he wasn't there before that. I'm sure he would have changed his his tune by that time. But actually, what was great about New Jersey, it's easy to live, easy to do your business, easy to make your dreams happen, and still be an hour from wilderness because it's a it's not a big state, but you've got the fantastic shore. But then you have that whole western corner, which is all wilderness and still goes by Indian names and has wonderful hiking trails and great climbing and lovely lakes. All very easy to get to. So what did your dad actually do in the army? Well, do you think I'd ever have asked my dad? <laughs> <laughs> he was a commanding officer. And uh, he was in the artillery when he was young, and then he became a commanding officer, and he actually went to Vietnam a few times, never made it to general because he would tell everyone exactly what he thought. And he gave me a lesson. He said, if you want to make friends, don't tell them what you think. Just tell them what they think they want to hear, which is what he never did, which is why he never got to the top grade. But he had great integrity. Did you used to walk around and like people would like salute your dad when you were like walking around next to him? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. He was the commanding officer. Wow. And what was that like as a kid? Like, did it make you look up to your father more or? Oh, no way. We were, we were, his three girls were the only ones who wouldn't salute. Right. <laughs> he had a hard time getting, keeping us uh, in command. Uh, but he, he, I took a lot, I would, I took a lot after him and he really wanted me to go into the army. He said, we need people like you. During your childhood, you moved to France. This is a period of time that you have fond memories about, excluding the food. What do you remember most about your time in France when you were a young child in the army? And where were you? In a village outside of Orléans. So our patron saint was Joan of Arc, of course, Orléans. Uh, what I remember most was actually I was always trying to get off the base. Okay. <laughs> in any way possible. I was trying to connect with the environment, with the people, but most of all with the language. And, you know, I'm thinking about it in a more of a psychological uh, term. I think I needed to connect with the language so that I could declare my independence from my parents at that time. How old were you? Between five and eight. So I had, I had a gift. I knew I had a gift. I was told already I had a gift for the ear, for music, ear, and languages. So it was easy for me to speak like a French person. That alone is a gift if you can actually manage it. And by doing that, I had access to the French culture that no one else in my family did. So I was able to break away a little bit from the stronghold of my family, and um, that was how I created my own life. 
Because it probably would have been a for a lot of people or a lot of the kids that would have gone with their parents to a base like that, a very insular thing that, you know, that they would have been surrounded by just English speakers on the base and outside of the base everybody speaks a different language. So it would have been hard and insular for them. Hard, no. Insular, yes, because that's what they want. But you didn't want that? I didn't want that. No, I didn't want that. And already when I was very young, uh, I I had the vision. I had the vision. I had the vision that I I knew what my road was going to be. I realize now today, honestly, that I had a vision of my yellow brick road. It was laid out for me. I could see it, and I followed it, and I'm still on it today. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about you, Teresa, because I feel a connection to that. I feel that it's, um, I've always felt living in Australia that I didn't belong there, that there was somewhere else in the world that I needed to live, that I didn't actually travel until my 30s. So it was, I didn't realise until I actually came here to France that that's where I was, wanted to be. On to food, you're a passionate French foodie. And like many of us, one of your food icon is Julia Childs, but you also have a, a probably a very, um, well, how can I say it? It's not the typical French food icon, a, a famous French actress. Who is that? And why is she your inspiration? Well, Stéphane Audran was a great French actress, actually beauty of a woman. And um, it was when I was very young, my dad had been invited to have invited to his colleague's house for dinner. So we took the whole family. And I'll never forget that. That was the beginning of my uh, attraction to France, its culture, its way of life, its style, and its food. The the wife of this man, I, have, I don't remember the name. All I remember is that woman who looked like Stéphane Audran. Not that I knew what she looked I didn't know at the age of six years old who Stéphane Audran was. Later on in film, I said, oh, I know, I know that person. She's exactly the same one that I had dinner with when I was a young child. And she had this wonderful dinner table set and we had pumpkin soup. And every fall I make pumpkin soup and she is always in the back of my mind and then I saw that fabulous film which was the Festin de Babette which was which was about how this French woman was on some outback island in Norway in the turn of the century and was able to seduce non-sexual seduction uh, was able to seduce all of the uh, craggy old men in the village uh, just by cooking for them and, and softening up their heart. In other words, she reached their heart through their stomach. What's this movie again? I'm going to have to write this down. Festin de Babette. Festin the de Babette. Festin de Babette. You can get it on. You can, you can download it and see it, but it's a masterpiece. So eventually, as an adult, you moved to France permanently. What brought you here? Uh, uh, permanently, when I actually made the move. Yes, well, yes. Uh, you know, I was in college and doing, you know, the four years university, and so I had to do a year abroad. So uh, I didn't want to go to the city that was part of my university program because I, when I, I said I want to 
master my French. I wasn't I wasn't studying French. I was studying journalism. But I wanted to master my French, and I wanted to do it in an area that didn't have a strong regional accent. So I didn't want to go to Strasbourg, which was where my university had a, a, a program. So I picked a, a neutral accent area, and I picked the Grenoble, not having any idea what it was like to live in the Alps. And there I was in Grenoble, which is not an easy city to live in especially if you don't have a car and you don't ski and you don't know anyone. And there I was in Grenoble, and that was really tough. It was really tough because um, it's a big industrial basin where it's located, the city. And on the weekends, everyone goes into the mountains, but I didn't have a car and I didn't know anyone. So I found myself stranded in this this city with nothing to do and no one that I knew. And I wasn't even speaking French because the program were for foreigners. So the foreigners were together and I didn't want to be with the foreigners. So I broke away. I maintained the program, but I broke away doing volunteer work, taking care of older people, teaching swimming, and doing theater. So I was in three ways involved with young French people. And they introduced me to life in the mountains. And and that's when I said, I lived there for, I did a semester or half a year, went back to get my degree, but I had contacts then. I had friends, I had people. And Andrew, that's all it's about. And how important was it for you to be integrated then in the French community? Like, so a lot of people do come here and get, again, insular. They 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 get attracted to these expat communities and don't go outside of it, don't ever have any French friends. Um, you know, very rarely do they integrate with French people, uh, which is such a shame. How important to you was it for your longevity of being here in France to integrate into French society doing those things, uh, being involved in theatres, etc.? It's the only way for me to visit and uh, delve into a country. But it can be France, it can be Italy, it can be Thailand. It was always through the language, through the people. Otherwise, I would be a, an eternal tourist. Butterflying, uh, butterflying from flower to flower. But in the end, I'm not, I'm not any happier. I'm not any younger. I'm not any richer. And, uh, I don't have any more roots. So I had this urge to plant a garden virtually in my head, planting roots. And that was through relations. You're in the Alps. Um, you're looking out for the Von Trapp family children that eventually come over and go back and forwards every now and then. They'll be coming soon, actually, because I've just taken the curtains down in my lounge room for them. But you actually now live in Chamonix or around Chamonix. No, in Chamonix. Is that right? Right, in, right in Chamonix. At the, right. Can you describe Chamonix to our listeners? Because it's one of my favourite places and it's where we met. Exactly. Well, Chamonix, uh, in the Alps, let's say like at the three corners between three countries, France, Switzerland, Italy, at the base of the tunnel that goes into Italy, and the base of the Mont Blanc, which is the tallest mountain. But the key to living in France for me is living in Chamonix. People say, oh, how do you like living in France? I said, oh, I don't live in France. 
I live in Chamonix. Because Chamonix is one of those insular towns where people come from all over the world. They're attracted here for different reasons. But why are they attracted here? They all have a mission, whatever it is. And that energy is what attracted me, the mission. And it didn't make any difference what you were here for. It was the energy that these people coming from Australia, from New Zealand, from South Africa, from Boston, from California, from the other half part of France, from Russia, they were all here for the mountain experience. How they defined the experience was personal and an individual, but everyone had a mission and has a mission. So that's what attracted me. That mountain experience that you're talking about, it's all year round. You can get people that are coming for the snow and for that season. You can then get people that are coming just to go to Mont Blanc. But then there's also people that want to come in summer and spring and and go for the walking and the experience of the French countryside and the Alps of, of those times. It must be a very magical place to be in. Um, it's not an easy place because we're at the base of a mountain. So we do have to deal with the weather and we also have to deal with the span of the sun. That's important here. We don't get a lot of sunlight in the bottom of the valley. So I used to commend, I used to compliment myself and say, Oh, you're smart. You never could have picked a better place to spend the winter. It's dark and cold and miserable in town in the wintertime. Why was it the great place to be? Because I was at the top of the mountain skiing in the sun. That's why. So from there, but what was the key to Chamonix? And that is important because I see a lot of people decide to live here. But if they are not involved physically in the mountain, they never last long. They just can't. They've got to have a relationship with the mountain itself. Doesn't make any difference what it is. Doesn't have to be sports. It doesn't have to be high level. It doesn't. But they have to be, they have to have this love relationship with the mountain. Mont Blanc, it's uh, towering over Chamonix. It's the largest mountain in Europe. Is that right? In, yeah, what they call Western Europe, yeah. Western Europe. Um, how often, you just mentioned that you go up there. How often do you go up there? Well, I've never climbed to the top of the Mont Blanc itself because I am not an ice and snow climber. I have climbed on many of the peaks around the Mont Blanc in the range because I am a rock climber, alpine rock climber, right? So um, I'm not interested in going up any longer. I've been up. I don't need to go up anymore. What I want to do is I want to have people come with me on my walks. These are the people that don't know the area and that will be on a well-beaten tourist track if they don't know how to get off it. I can help them get off it in a short amount of time and have them smell the perfume of what it's like to really be part of the environment here. That's what that's what motivates me now. That is my mission now. There's also a fantastic glacier there in uh, Chamonix that you can walk through, which for an Australian is like, oh my god, like this is amazing. What's it called again? That's the in English we call it the Sea of Ice, in French the Mer de Glace, and that actually was how 
the mountain range became discovered for the rest of the world, it was when in the turn of the, it was during the 1800, what am I saying, 1700s, that the British youth were traveling and doing the world tour. Two of them, Vindam and Pocock, make their way to Chamonix to see the ice mountains. And the peasants of Chamonix at that time took them to this incredible glacier. It was later named the Sea of Ice by Mary Shelley. When she discovered it, she was hanging out with Lord Byron at the time. And she, like everyone else, goes to the top of the platform to see the back of the mountain, which is the Mont Envers. She saw this, this river of ice, and she said it's like a sea of ice. That's where you got the name. La Mer de Glace. And there, of course, she imagined Frankenstein coming as he was escaping, running away from the hordes who were looking to get him. And he was running across the sea of ice in the, the novel Frankenstein. You now do photographic tours in Chamonix. What led you to this career path of uh, showing people around Chamonix? <laughs> That's a good question. I came here to ski originally. And then I came, and then I maintained the skiing and brought it into climbing. The, the What I did when I came here is I basically didn't do anything else but ski. It's a, For me, it's like all or nothing. And I skied myself out. Then I transferred to climbing, alpine climbing, rock climbing in, in particular, and became a professional climber. Then I climbed myself out. And my body was had said, okay, you go, I'm staying here. And my body was not following. And I ended up having at a very young age to get a hip replacement. So I'm sitting in my hospital bed getting this hip replacement. And I'm saying, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to climb or ski or do anything. What am I going to do now? And that's when I invented the walks, which I had originally invented for non active people, because these are what we call promenades or strolls. They're not hikes at all. So I invented it for those people that were no longer in sports or would never be interested in sport. But it was a way to walk through the valley and discover all different angles and parts and villages and encounter people. So that's how I invented it. The only problem is, is that I'm getting people that are 30 or 40 years younger than me, uh, on these walks. And they're walking fast. And so <laughs> and I have to keep up. <laughs> well, they are fabulous walks and we do keep up. I do remember one of my fondest memories of being on a walk with you was when uh, at one stage we stopped in a clearing that was sort of, there was no houses. It was sort of in between houses. Um, there was this sort of big clearing and we stopped right there and you told us that there was no houses built here because this is where the avalanches come down. And I thought, well, why are we stopping here? <laughs> this is where the avalanches come down. And I wanted to hurry along very quickly. And Lenny, I don't know if you remember, came on the tour with us, our golden retriever, and he had a fabulous time. Do you know that I am doing now dog-friendly walks? That's my new. That's great. That's my new pitch. Yep. 
but I have to do it as a pitch because most people uh, lock their dogs up in the hotel room or their uh yes, their no, room. they shouldn't do that. Get out and, with your dogs. We don't. Sure. We never leave the dogs in the hotel. They come to the restaurants with us. They come out with us. In fact, if we can't go in somewhere with the dogs, then often. We don't go in. <laughs> well, that's why I am making it known that these are dog-friendly walks. And then I am actually doing walks, designing the walks for people with dogs so that not only they can discuss, because many of these holiday people who actually own property here don't know Chamonix the way I do. So they're always going on the same walk. And they're doing it three times a day because they've got to walk the dog. So I am showing them new places where they can go because you cannot go everywhere and where you can run with the dog or let the dog run if they've got a dog they can let off the leash. The most important thing is they've got their little doggy bag and that they clean, you know, they pick up the poop. And that's important because I have to come back the day after that with another person. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you're a passionate food French foodie and would love to be a guest on the show, or do you know a fabulous French food producer, cook, chef, or knowledgeable foodie that you think I need as a guest, then please jump on Instagram and DM me. That's Instagram at Andrew Pryor Fabulously. I love people sliding into my DMs, so let me know as I'm always up to meet fellow French foodies and hopefully bring them to you. My name's Andrew Pryor and my motto in life is, whatever you do, you should do it fabulously. Thanks for listening and let's start chewing some more on some more of this chat with Teresa and learn all about the tartiflette. Now, on to our topic for today, the tartiflette. My first question to you is possibly the most contentious. Is the tartiflette a dish, a tart, or a pizza? Well, okay, tartiflette is definitely a dish, and it has nothing to do with tarte. But the name for potatoes in the dialect of the region, the Savoyard dialect, the patois, a potato is a tartifle. Tartif. That's the name of a potato. That's what they call it, a tartif. I'd have to go into a, a further uh, dictionary to find out the root of that word. But that's where the potato is called the tartif. Now, the tartiflette is a modern invention for an old dish called the pella. So what is a pella? Because it sounds like something Spanish or something. So, No, it's not. It's really pella. Pela. Uh, Pela, when I first arrived here, tartiflette didn't exist. I didn't see a tartiflette until much later, maybe 15 years later. But everyone everyone had this dish called the pela. And the pela comes from the word pan. Pela, pan, in the form of a spatula. So it's like a shovel. That's also pel, which means shovel in France. And so you'd have a long pan that you would cook, put on the open fire in the old days. And what were you putting in it? You were sauteing potatoes with their skins on that you had cut up in cubes. They were not cooked. They were raw and sauteing them in oil or butter with onions until they're perfect, until they're nice. And then you were throwing in bits of old 
Roblochon cheese. Roblochon. Only Roblochon. And then you would cook that on the open fire. It was also sometimes called a fricassé. A fricassé of Roblochon. It was a way to eat the leftovers so you didn't have any leftovers of anything ever, which was the principle of fondue, of course. Old bread, old cheese, uh, in a, in a, in a pot that you would then cook down and you could, you, you, you know, you'd eat up all the leftovers. And the paella was a way to get rid of your leftover hoblochon. Right. So this paella, it's a pretty old dish. It's thought to go back to the, the Savoyards, the Savoyards, the Savoyards. Who are the Savoyards? The Savoyards were the tribe of people. They were the people that were living in this part of France. I mean, they had different names. They were Allobroges, but that was the region called La Savoie, Haute-Savoie and Savoie. So what's the difference between a tartiflette and a paella? The difference between the tartiflette and the paella is the paella is cooked in this pan with potatoes that you have sautéed in onions and you put cheese in there. The tartiflette is cooked Normally, in an oven, you cook the potatoes ahead of time. You also take off the skins of the potatoes. You cook them ahead of time. You boil them up. Then you chop them. You don't want to cook them overdo. You don't want to overcook them. You chop them so they're still a little bit firm. Then you put in the onions and the bacon. That's the addition that you don't have in the paella. And then you put on top of that, you put on either strips of roblechon or you can put in sometimes if you don't have any problem with eating enormous amounts of cheese, a whole roblechon sitting right on it and in the oven, that will then melt down. So you've mentioned the roblechon cheese. So what is a roblechon cheese? Well, it's actually from the Haute-Savoie and you're only going to find it, uh, well, I'll correct myself. No, it's from the Aravie from the Aravi Mountains, which are actually quite wide, and they go from half in the Savoie, half in the Haute-Savoie. And the Roblechon is a cheese that you will never find outside of, you might find it elsewhere in Europe, but you will never find it in other countries because it is a raw cheese that has not been cooked. So it does not travel. It does not travel well. And how uh, the Roblechon actually means the peasants, we're talking already Middle Ages, 18th century up to 18th century, were had a technique to milk their cows twice. They would first milk their cows and their taxes were based on how much milk they accumulated from the milking of the cow. A little bit like paying the dime, which is where you get the deem. In French, it's the dime to taxpayers. You pay your milk tax according to what you milked. And then once the taxpayer had collected his money, then you milk the cow again. And in that last package, in that last pocket he, the cow has in her, in her uh, milk bag is full of fat and cream and really rich. So they milk that rich milk out, and they make this roblochon cheese from that. Robloché means, basically it means maybe maybe cheating a little bit. It's how they got a little bit more, and that they kept for themselves. They made the cheese for themselves. 
and that's what the, it became, this Roblochon. Why do you think that it's such a popular dish? But because you see the Roblochon, and this is really unique, the Roblochon is made many different places. The Roblochon is made in many different places in the Alps. Of course, you have a co-op, a cheese factory, but all cheeses are made in the cheese factory and then they're made in the mountains also. And they'll have different, you'll have the, the cheese that is done on the farm and then cheese that is done in the co-op. And um, sorry, I went too far on that explanation. I forgot the question. Say it again. <laughs> so I was talking, you were talking about the actual chef that um, yeah. helped to promote it in the, in the 80s. But, you know, it's interesting, though, is, is that I won't, I went to see friends uh, back in the 80s who invited me to come to visit them in Avoriaz, which is uh, one of the resorts, ski resorts um, in the Alps, in the Haute-Savoie. Uh, and I saw for the first time a giant tartiflette. And I said, what is this tourist thing? This is a pela. And in fact, that's what it is. It's a more commercial way of doing an old dish, the only thing that they that is different, they take off the skins and they pre-cook the potatoes. So what does that give you? It gives you a dish that's faster to make. You don't have to be sitting by the fire getting, you know, heat exposure while the potatoes are cooking in a lot of oil. So you're going to pre-cook them and it's going to be easier to put together. Everyone can do it, and they don't have to be there with the long pan that you have to then clean. You just put them in a dish, put it in the oven, and you've got your tarty flat. It's just a more commercial way to do the same thing. But the difference is you add the bacon. So when I get people saying, I would love a tarty flat, but with no bacon, they should just say, I would like a pala. But no one knows what a pala is any longer. So it's just the same dish without bacon. Well, with the bacon, the cheese, and the potatoes, it might be a good idea to get that uh, that heat effect and, uh, you know, sort of sweat off a bit of calories before you eat it whilst you're making the dish. <laughs> it's mostly sweat off a lot of calories by going to the top of the Mont Blanc once you've eaten it. Exactly. That's an even better idea. Do you eat a tartiflette on its own or is it a side dish? Well, no, it's definitely eat it on its own. It's just too big. It's a winter dish, although many people come in the summertime and they and they eat it and then they'll say, mm, that was great. I'll come back next year for another one. But it's just a very heavy dish. Heavy is not the word. It's rich. It's cheese. It's potatoes. It's bacon. It's calories. And it's perfect for here in the wintertime when it's cold. You eat it with a salad on the side. That's what it is. It's a dish like that. What wine should we be drinking with a tartiflette? Well, that's very personal, but in general, it's going to be a white wine from the Savoie. And the Savoie makes fabulous white wines. Fabulous red wines, but you have to be a little bit more introduced to the red wines of the Savoie, yet their white wines are divine. And that is what goes best with either a fondue, a tartiflette, or a gratin is the white wine. It's often served as an après ski meal, and you sort of talked about this before. Now, I'm from Sydney, Australia, so we don't get much skiing in Sydney. So forgive my ignorance, but what is après ski? Oh, après ski is 
the celebration after a hard day in the mountains, which is not necessarily hard, but it's definitely demanding because your body is fighting the cold all the time. You are properly dressed, whether you are walking, whether you are sitting on the terrace just getting the sun, or whether you are skiing, or, or it's just your body is, is working hard to combat the cold. So when you come down, there's this thaw effect. And that is when you can celebrate with, uh, here, look, ah, you can celebrate with a warm dish like tartiflette, glass of wine, or beer. Beer is not what you have with you. You might have beer before for your aperitif and then go on from there to your meal. Right. So do you, is it your dinner, basically, après ski, or is, do you have dinner again later on? Ah, après ski, a good point. A very good point. Après ski is what you're going to have as an aperitif after ski. And then you might then around 8 o'clock, because you're going to come down. It's easy to figure that one out because in December, it's dark at 5.30. So you're down off the mountains anyway. By You're down off the mountains by 4.30. So you're going to do an après ski between 5 o'clock and 8 o'clock. And then from there, you can go to dinner. Do other regions of France have their own version of a tartiflette or a pale? Oh, no. No, no, no. No, no, no. It's, it's definitely a dish from this part of the Alps. You can, you you know, but it's interesting. You ask a good question. Uh, you And you're right to ask it because there will be no other version you could ask you can go 50 kilometers down the road and ask for a tartiflette on the other side of the border. They won't know what you're talking about. But you can ask for a rusty. A rust. And that's the same thing. It's potatoes that have been sautéed with whatever they have left over. And uh, you can have an egg on it or you can have bacon in it or you can. And that's, see, it's always the same thing. It's no waste. No waste. And those are the dishes that gobble up the waste, the, the leftovers, not the waste. Now, I've saved the most important question to last. Where's the best place in Chamonix when we come and visit you and we go on a tour with you? Where's the best place in Chamonix to have a tartiflette? Well, that's really a tough one. Oh, gosh. Uh, that's a really tough one because everyone does it. it can't, it's not a dish that can be really it's not a high it's not haute cuisine what's important about tartiflette like in all other cuisines of france is the ingredient it's all a matter of ingredients so you can't really you can't really ruin it in any way um but if you don't use the good ingredients you're not going to get that the result and so you have to have the good cheese. That's the key. So to get the good cheese, you have to go to restaurants that have a good turnover. So I would say there are three restaurants. I mean, everyone in the main town, everyone serves it. And you have no idea whether it was made last week and frozen and then popped into the microwave. You don't know. So you have to go to the restaurants that have a lot of turnover and that are making their tartiflette every day. It's an oven dish. So they prepare it, they cook it, and then when you order it, then they finish it off in the oven for the, for the part that grills it. 
And the three restaurants that I think would be the Crémerie du Glacier, which is an Argentière. Then you have La Calèche, which is in downtown Chamonix. That's a favorite place for visitors, usually the first restaurant that they go to. And then in a little village between Chamonix and Valorcine is a tiny little hamlet called Auberge de la Buerne. Uh, and they also make a nice tartiflette. Fabulous. Well, we'll have to put that on our list for when we come and join you in Chamonix and uh, go for another walking tour and go up on top of that Mont Blanc and get our photo taken on that glass bridge that overlooks the mountain there that's kind of scary and terrifying. Definitely. Even for me. <laughs> Teresa Kaufman, thank you so much for joining us on Fabulously Delicious today. It's been an absolute pleasure and you've taught us so much about Chamonix as well as the Tartifolette. So thank you so much. My pleasure, Andrew. Such a fabulous chat with Teresa. She's a wonderful person and I'm so lucky to know her and hope that one day you might get to meet Teresa in person. Also, she has the honour of being my first guest to forget what the question was after answering another completely different question that I sort of didn't even ask. Loved it. That was hilarious. Thanks, Teresa, for your time and taking part in Fabulously Delicious. Don't forget, if you like this episode, then please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, and share the podcast around with your friends and family that are into food or just love everything French. I love to be shared around, and so does the podcast. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then you can do so by buying me a croissant via the Buy Me A Coffee website. Or you can become a Patreon if you'd like to support on a continual monthly basis. Any help is appreciated so that I can bring more fabulous people to Fabulously Delicious. If you're coming or planning on coming to France in the not-too-distant future, then why not book in a one-hour Zoom call with me so that I can help you plan a fabulous trip. You can do that via the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes for this episode or by checking out my website, www.andrewpriorfabulously.com. In 2022, you will hopefully be able to come and join me in person for some fabulous cooking classes as well as small group tours of France. So stay tuned for more information on that. I'm Andrew Pryor and my motto in life is whatever you do, do it fabulously. So why not join me here every week on Fabulously Delicious, the podcast. Abiento and bon app. Hello and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.